Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike King, your host, and this is part one of our interview with Hilary O'Connor-Murie, callsign Toro. Toro chats about what it was like to operate the F-14D, flying with VF-213, the Black Lions, flying on operations, and she also includes some incredible stories. We also talk about her time flying the F-16 and F-18 at NSOC, and how they differed from the F-14 Tomcat. I also want to thank our sponsor, Laco Watches, who are one of the original companies to produce pilot watches for the Luftwaffe during World War II. They produce both A and B dial watches in different sizes to suit all tastes, which adopt the look of times gone by but still satisfied modern demands. You can check out all their models and products via www.laco.de. Thank you. Okay, so Toro, when did you first become interested in aviation? Uh, I don't even remember. It's uh, since I could walk, since I could breathe. Um, I've always been obsessed with everything aviation and space related. Uh, I'm genuinely the kid who never grew out of wanting to be an astronaut. Oh, right. yeah. Very interesting. I had uh, space pictures all over my bedroom growing up instead of boy bands. Uh, yeah, and so um, when I went away to college, I just decided that I was going to study uh, something to do with aviation. Initially, I had looked into astronomy or astrophysics. Um, but then I started getting much more into the actual mechanics of airplanes. All right. So when, what year did you join the Navy and what role did you join as? So uh, the way the training program works, I wasn't uh, joined up until I graduated from university. Um, so I got commissioned in 1999, but I started in ROTC, which is Reserve Officer, Officer Training Corps, um, in 1995. Um, so I went uh, to university and then I took a course every quarter uh, that was for naval uh, training purposes. Uh, and then in the summer times, I went on um, summer cruises, they called them. So I spent one summer on uh, an LSD ship, and then I spent one summer with an aviation squadron. So tell us why you wanted to become a Rio and not a pilot. Oh, I was blind as a bat. Oh, um, so these days, as long as you can correct your vision to 2020, you're allowed to be a pilot. Mm -hmm. But when I uh, got commissioned, you had to have natural 2020 vision or there was no chance whatsoever. And having laser surgery was an automatic disqualification. Oh, really? So uh, to be a backseater, you had to be able to correct 2020. And so even though I couldn't read the big E on the uh, vision chart, I could do so with glasses. So uh, from day one, it was never a shot at being a pilot, but mm -hmm. I love airplanes and wanted to fly and mm -hmm. wanted to fly fighters mm -hmm. and so I would take any any route to get there that I could. Mm -hmm. And did you have an aircraft in mind at this point that you wanted to go into? Tomcats, 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 Tomcats. Uh, at the time uh, Super Hornets hadn't entered service yet so there were baby Hornets but no backseaters. Oh, uh, no yeah so uh, the the Tomcat was the fighter for for backseaters. Mm -hmm. So what were your first thoughts on the F-14? It was just a majestic airplane. I mean, if you went to an air show, it was the one that everyone stood up for and waited for. It could have been the Blue Angels flying, and, and it's a fantastic thing seeing the precision that they do, but I just know that uh, Tomcat goes overhead and, and breath catches, and everybody just has to follow it everywhere it went. Um, when you actually start looking into the mechanics of it, though, it's just a beast, especially uh, the D models with the upgraded engines and the upgraded radars. Uh, so by the time I got into flight school and, and had my heart set on Tomcats and was, was working for that, uh, when I finally got the opportunity to fly Ds, especially as a Rio, that big radar was just uh, an exciting bonus. Mm -hmm. Before I move on, did you know the difference between the A, B and D? Did you, or did you just think Tomcat? So uh, once I graduated flight school, 
uh, I went to the FRS, which a lot of people call the RAG. Offhand, they, they changed the name to the Fleet Replacement Squadron. Um, and at that time, I was uh, stashed there for a couple months before starting classes. And I don't think that there was any jockeying or any uh, positioning for it. It was just, you know, I'm here to fly Tomcats, and it was exciting. But when I learned that I got the, the D slot for Rios, I was... I was pretty stoked about that. I can imagine. So what was the actual role of a RIO? So a RIO, uh, by definition, is a radar intercept officer. So uh, in the fighter role, you take command of the radar and uh, develop targets, track them. Uh, you develop the solutions for long-range weapons employments. You work with your pilot um, to do all that. Uh, in addition, there's a lot of administrative work you do in the flight regime from um, all of the radio communications to navigation. And then there's a... A plethora of boxes in the backseat that you're responsible for uh, in the modern era. The most important one, of course, is the laser guidance for air-to-ground weapons. So the controller for that is in the backseat, so it's all, all run from the back. Um, also inputting coordinates if you're doing GPS-guided bombs. Um, and then some of the important but uh, less sexy uh, boxes between the, uh, the, the scramblers for the radios, um, jammers, chaff flares, um, you know, so can you tell us a bit about your ground training on the Tomcat? When you first start off, it's a lot of classroom work. Um, I think people would be surprised at how study-intensive uh, the aviation community is. You spend a lot of time learning about all of the systems, um, all of the mechanical systems in the jet, from the fuel system, engines, uh, radar, um, all of those little boxes that I mentioned. Then you spend some time doing computer-based uh, uh, study, so you do a little bit of testing on the fly. Uh, you have to memorize all of your emergency procedures, and you do a lot of testing on that, as well as on the systems. Uh, and eventually, you process from doing um, just the study part to simulator work. Uh, and then as you train up on the simulator, you move over to actually flying the airplanes. Yeah, so that's moved on nicely. So what was a simulator like at that time? Was it as like you see today with the amazing graphics and the moving cockpit? Uh, they're fairly close. We had um, a, a different variety. So there were some that were just um, um, stationary, but most of them were um, the wraparound screens um, with the full uh, full cockpit inside them that was uh, you know down to the details. Um, surprisingly, a lot of a Rio's job involved pulling circuit breakers. So you had to have all the circuit breakers in the in the uh, trainers in order to do your emergency uh, procedure testing and whatnot. So uh, they, they were fairly uh, modern, even by today's standards. Not necessarily the giant moving dome, but but wraparound screens and, and uh, lifelike cockpits. Probably a lot different from the early A models <laughs> back in the 70s and 80s. But uh, yeah, so where were you based for your training? Uh, so training for flight school, I was in Pensacola, Florida, and then after getting winged, I moved on to Virginia Beach, Virginia. So I was with uh, VF-101 there. How uh, good were the systems on the Tomcat compared to something like the Strike Eagle? Uh, you know, there was a bit of a mix. Um, for example, there were a couple airframes in my squadron, VF-213, that were literally older than I am. Um, but those had been refurbished A's. Yeah. Um, the fascinating thing, though, is despite the fact that they were, you know, older technology and older aircrafts, they were perpetually upgraded. So we did have a lot of modern gizmos and what's-its inside as well. Um, so we, we had um, 
you know, uh, not touch screens, but we had digital screens. And, and even during the course of my era there, they were upgraded over time. I know you had uh, one reader who was very interested in the, the, the transition from the TID to the PTID. That, that happened all while I was uh, in Tomcats. So even, even towards the end of their service life, they were still putting in more and more modern uh, avionics. Mm -hmm. So what was a cockpit like in general? Was it comfy? Was it cramped? Oh, it, definitely not comfy. Uh, not terribly cramped either. The the Tomcat, being a big jet, had, had a lot of elbow room, um, but it doesn't matter necessarily how big it is around you when you're strapped into an ejection seat. There's there's not a whole lot of wiggle yeah. room. Um, and, and to being ready to have an emergency at any point in time, you have to be strapped in tight and, mm -hmm. and ready to go. So uh, it could get very, very uncomfortable for long flights. Mm -hmm. So did you have any control of the wing sweep or actually flying the aircraft? We always joked that uh, Rios had three control surfaces. We had the uh, launch button for the uh, Phoenix missile in the back. We had the canopy eject lever, and we had the eject handle. So can you remember your first flight in the Tomcat? My first flight in the Tomcat... Um, Honestly, I don't think I remember the first one. Really? Uh, I think it's washed away from all of the adrenaline and the uh, the abject uh, uh, terror of of uh, being graded for it. Because um, you know, in flight school, every flight is a grade. So mm -hmm. in, after you graduate, even though the, in, in in the fleet replacement squadron, every everything you say, everything you do is being graded. So I think I was just uh, so. Focused on it, that that all of the uh, the the adrenaline surge has washed it away. I, I do remember some some of it. Uh, I, I know that's a really weird thing to say. Uh, my first flight was a, a solid month before the second one. Mm. Um, we had a little bit of a backup in the training pipeline, so they they got us out and they got us one fan flight. And it was it was a single ship, and it was to go out and have a little bit of a an introduction to what it could do. So it, it really was just kind of a fun go burn some gas out over the ocean and and uh, get the feel for what it feels like as opposed to, to being in a trainer aircraft. Yeah. So what kind of uh, training flying would you do in your training period? Was it basic uh, maneuvering or is it uh, just getting used to the we weapon system in the back? Uh, well, it, it builds up. So the first couple of flights are all about just um, familiarity with uh, what to expect out of the aircraft. And then um, you work up to running the radar um, you spent you know time in the simulators on on how to operate it properly. So now you're going to practice what it looks like in in effect uh, uh, or in real world situations because uh, the simulator everything you know looks looks proper the way it's supposed to. When you when you're trying to run it out in uh, in, in 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 an environment, you have all kinds of different feedback coming from the radar mm -hmm. and learning to manage that. Um, so then you start out with you know single ships. You start then you move up to two and you do two v ones, two v twos, and eventually um, you're expected to be able to operate at the mm -hmm. the level of somebody in the fleet. Mm -hmm. And were you training at this point just for air-to-air -air or air-to-ground or multi-role missions? Multi-role missions, yeah. Right, you, yeah. you start off um, doing them separated and then you do um, self-escorted strikes. So you do fighter role transitioning into an air-to-ground role and then back again. Um, so it definitely was kind of all-inclusive. So do you think the Tomcat was better at one mission than the other? or was Because uh, it was originally designed as an interceptor. Right. Um, 
I think the Tomcat uh, was a really fascinating aircraft because it really did change with the times. So we moved away from having to have that pure interceptor role where you have as fast as you can go, long range weapons, to having um, the ability to do self-escorts. Um, you know, obviously we, we, we like to refer to the Tomcat as the, uh, the flying tennis court. It's a big plane. It's got a lot of the disadvantages of being a big plane. Um, you're never going to hide from radar with it. But on the other hand, you have big fuel capacity. You have a bigger payload capacity. You have the um, benefits of all of that involved. Um, I don't know that you could say there's a better plane or a worse plane. It's just about um, acknowledging and planning for your strengths and your weaknesses. Uh, and then particularly... Um, how it integrates into a strike package. Mm -hmm. So you can talk about an individual aircraft or, or aircraft type in one way, um, but figuring out how it fits into the role of the air wing is the most important part. So did you ever conduct DSET in the Tomcat? Yes, uh, part of training was uh, anytime you can get your hands on somebody from uh, a different aircraft type, just um, if you do nothing but fly against Tomcats, you learn how to fly against Tomcats. Uh, you have to understand how your strengths and weaknesses line up against other aircraft strengths and weaknesses. Um, so in particular, uh, you, when we went to do um, training in Fallon, they had F-18s, F-16s, F-5s. Um, so we, we got a fairly wide uh, gambit of different uh, aircraft to do training with. And how did it fare against those, those types? So the Tomcat, again, has its strengths and weaknesses, and a lot of it depends on how the pilot or the air crew can uh, leverage those against the other aircraft. So sometimes you can win, sometimes you can't. Uh, but a lot of that comes down to the relative skills of both air crew involved. Um, sometimes you get into a situation where there's no winning, but that's, you know... Um, to be expected as well. Did you ever go up against the Air Force or other nations' Air Forces, like the RAF, for instance? Uh, no, not in part of my training. Okay, great. Unfortunately. <laughs> we we had, a, had a trip planned, but we lost out on funding. We were supposed to visit with the, the Germans, but it never oh, that came through. Been fun. Yeah. We so, were all salivating over the MiG-29s. Oh, yes, the 29s, yes. So what weapons uh, could the Tomcat carry at this time? Uh, so air-to-air, -air, we carry the Phoenix AIM-54, we carry the uh, AIM-7 Sparrow and the AIM-9 uh, Mikes at the time, AIM-9 Mike uh, Sidewinders, air-to-ground. Uh, air uh, initially, we only had uh, LGBs, and then it was in early... 2003, literally as we were doing the transit from the U.S. into the Mediterranean before uh, OIF started, that we got a new software load and we were able to carry JDAM, mm -hmm. so GPS-guided bombs. Yeah. So I don't know much about this air-to-ground role, but was it a capable platform to, you know, to fill this role? Oh, yeah. It was capable up until the day it was uh, retired and then some. Um, once again, there's always a matter of strengths and weaknesses, but uh, I would have loved to have seen it funded for longer than it was mm -hmm. because it was still uh, an aircraft that could uh, uh, do what it was meant to do. Mm -hmm. and we, before we move on to your fleet squadron, I've got a few nerdy questions of my own. <laughs> um, I like being nerdy. Um, I don't understand. You never see a Tomcat on, on the runway or from the carrier using afterburners in the D. Why is this? Because uh, it didn't need to. So um, A models took off from the carrier using burner, but the, the D model engines were big enough that you didn't need to. Yeah, because sometimes I've seen them just take off and then they kick in the burners. Mm -hmm. but I just thought, is that just for sure? Yeah, um, it could be, or it could be that the pilot 
felt like they had a little bit of a settle off the catapult mm -hmm. and wanted a little bit more energy. Um, if I recall correctly, uh, I think that the operating manual says you're not allowed to use afterburner on the uh, carrier because of uh, potential for damaging mm -hmm. the jet blast deflector. Mm -hmm. So obviously landing and taking off the uh, from the carrier is pretty scary, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, how did you even start to train for this? And how much <laughs> of a role did you play in it? Um, so you do spend some time doing practice landings. Mm -hmm. So we have what we call an uh, FCLP, so field carrier landing practice. Uh, there's a small airfield located outside of Virginia Beach. We uh, go there. It's set up to look like a carrier. Uh, and so you practice doing the approach pattern onto this non-moving piece of flat ground <laughs> that doesn't go anywhere. Um, and then eventually you, you go to the ship and your first time is, is looking down at the, the little bobbing postage stamp in the middle of the ocean. Um, the Rio's role can be varied. So obviously there's, there's no control surfaces that you're, you're going over. You do help with um, all of the communications, so it takes a little bit of the workload off of the pilot that would otherwise be theirs. Um, a lot of it was very dependent on the individual pilot, so um, what they wanted to hear from you. I had certain pilots that loved a lot of feedback while we were coming in, so um, between altitude and, and on-speed calls and um, distances or whatever, and there were some that says, hey, I just need you to be quiet until a certain point, and then I want to hear X, Y, or Z out of you. Um, so a lot of it was just uh, simply down to crew coordination, mm -hmm. what, what you could do to contribute um, or to, to keep you safe. Uh, that being said, if uh, your pilot even says, don't, don't speak to me, I don't want to hear a word, if they start getting off parameters to a certain extent, it's a safety flight issue, mm -hmm. start saying, okay, well, I need you to do X, I need you to do Y. All right. uh, and then, too, eventually, when um, flying with some of the more junior pilots when it was later in my career, becoming a little bit more directive about it. So instead <laughs> of um, um, being a little bit reactive, you start getting a little bit more proactive about settles or, or whatnot and, yeah. and, and being, um, let's see, aggressively assistive. Good way of putting it. So what was your first squadron you were assigned to? I was with VF-213, the Fighting Black Lions. And do you pick that, or do they pick it for no, you? No, it's, it's completely selected for you. However, um, at the time, there were only three D squadrons that were in operation, and VF-213 was the only one that allowed women. Oh, why? Why is that? That's very uh, I don't know what the decisions were, um, because uh, I know that the other two squadrons were on carriers that had women in staff. I think part of it was to cluster the few of us together for support purposes, but... Uh, yeah, that was uh, something beyond my pay grade. Yeah. <laughs> so did each squadron have its own role or did you just all do the multi-mission um, multi missions? Uh, I think it was fairly uh, standard across the board. I mean, different uh, air wings are going to utilize their aircraft as their commander sees fit, but mm -hmm. it, was, it was fairly uniform, I think. Mm -hmm. And what carrier were you assigned to? Uh, I, was on the US <laughs> I was on the USS Theodore. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, I was on the USS Theodore Roosevelt. So what kind of flying would you do off the carrier? 
define kind of flying. So would you train each day for a certain mission or is each day different? Would you go air to air one day? It depends on what stage of training we were in. So uh, while you're doing workups, while you're getting ready to deploy, you have to demonstrate certain metrics to say that your carrier air wing is ready for combat. Um, so you have certain set missions that you have to perform. Um, they tend to build from sort of more simple ones to more complex ones over time. Um, but then uh, once certified and gone on deployment, you are either doing training missions to stay current, which could be yeah, air to air or uh, air to ground. Um, sometimes you would do um, some air to surface, sort of uh, seeing what's around the carrier to make sure that you're safe. Um, and then uh, even mixed in with uh, combat flights. Oh, so quite mixed then. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was always um, something going on that was different. So mm-hmm. uh, sometimes you knew what was coming up because you were doing a lot of planning ahead of mm-hmm. time because, you know, for every uh, hour of flight, you have uh, who, who knows how many hours of planning and, and training to do. So did you ever get to uh, conduct a is it supersonic pass uh, past the boat? Because they look pretty cool. <laughs> uh, let's see, past the boat, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, you, you spend a decent amount of time supersonic. Oh, really? So, you didn't have to use afterburner for that? Or oh, yeah. You did? I, I would say most of the time. It, well, it depends on how high you are because, mm-hmm. let's nerd out a little bit, uh, Mach number is a function of air temperature, mm-hmm. and so the higher you are, the colder it is. And yeah. So what was life like on the carrier? What was the conditions like for just general oh, living? Oh, my goodness. Um, when I talk about it, a lot of times, I compare it to being a little bit like being a child again. <laughs> right. Somebody cooks for you. Somebody does your laundry. Somebody cleans up after you. Um on the other hand, it's it's a very unlike anything else experience. You're you're on this giant boat. It's a floating city. There's five thousand other people hanging out with you in any given time. Uh, you spend a lot of time with your squadron mates, um, which is good and bad. You can get very close, and you can also annoy the heck out of each other, <laughs> um, depending on how much time you're stuck on the boat without a, a trip into port. Um, you spend a lot of time studying, a lot of time preparing for flights. You spend time working to uh, make sure that all of your maintainers are properly trained and getting all the support that they need. Um, it's 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 a very removed existence from day to day life. Uh, you, you get your own routines where oh we're gonna eat at this specific hour. We have our own tables that we stake out as being our squadrons and. Um, <laughs> You tend to get into a little bit of tomfoolery with the other squadrons. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a little bit juvenile in certain mm-hmm. respects, but I think it's the way that you relieve a lot of the pressure from mm-hmm. having to be um, so precise the rest of the time when you're uh, on the job. Yeah. So, so how much rivalry was there between you, uh, the F-14 guys, and the F-18 guys? Oh, there was there was a good chunk of it, um, especially since I think this was late in the Tomcat life, and everyone was just waiting for their turn to, to get transitioned over to, to Hornets. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, I think, good-natured rivalry. Um, one of the silly pranks that we played when we were on deployment is uh, in the middle of the night, when there was a no-fly day the next day, we, we broke into the the Hornets ready room and stole their uh, ready room chairs and put them up on the one wire on the on the carrier deck. Um, yeah, uh, we all had two squadron uh, memorabilia. So um, Black Lions had a big wooden Black Lion mm-hmm. we called Bob, and so the other squadrons would try to to, to steal him, and mm-hmm. it was our 
our junior most officer's job to protect Bob. Um, but we nabbed one of their squadron flags once and took it on a tour of Europe. And um, yeah, and two, you, you kind of um, needle them about their lack of fuel, and they would needle you about uh, being big and burly. And um, I, like I said, I, I think in the end it was all just. Uh, you can make fun of uh, your brothers, but don't anyone else dare to, mm, or, yeah. or we'll have words, that kind of thing. <laughs> right, yeah. So did you ever fly on operations? Yes. Can you tell us about this? Um, if you so, can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we originally were still doing workups, and we were in the Caribbean uh, in early 2003. And uh, we had been told, pack like you're not coming home. Mm. And so, uh, sure enough, uh, instead of turning back towards Norfolk the way we were supposed to, we uh, headed out to the east. Um, and so then, early in 2003, we took up station in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And so, um, funny enough, we spent a lot of time glued to uh, CNN, waiting to see what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, on the first nights of the war, we were uh, part of the, the earliest strikes. Mm-hmm. So um, I was an airborne spare for the first one and uh, ended up just doing a training mission and came mm-hmm. back. So I didn't end up flying in combat for a couple of days into, into the combat operations, mm-hmm. but uh, ended up with, um, I think, about a dozen flights in country before we uh, closed out. Wow. How did you feel about this? Did you feel a bit nervous or was it just training kicking in and just go for it? Early on, I think that there was, uh, for me at least, a lot of anticipation. Um, I had a very, very strange arrival to my squadron. So I uh, finished out on training right as um, my squadron was headed home from OEF in uh, Afghanistan. So I was part of the squadron and met them coming home. So I was the senior most air crew in the squadron who hadn't been in a combat situation before. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was anticipation. So it was um, waiting for your uh, name to appear in the the roster. It was like, you know, is it going to be today? Is it going to be tomorrow? And finally, when it was on the the schedule, um, it was a different sort of anticipation. It wasn't being afraid. It wasn't being upset about it or anything. It was just sort of being... Um, hyper aware that you know this is what the training is for and and as I said I, I wasn't with my squadron for OEF so there was a certain amount of I need to prove myself I need to to live up to to the training and whatnot um, when it came to actually launching um, it was unique to go and pre-flight a jet and have live ordnance hanging on it um, and to, you know, for the first time I'm carrying a sidearm when I'm manning up into the jet. Um, it, it had a very different kind of aura around it. Mm-hmm. And yet it was another launch. It was mm-hmm. do everything by the numbers. It was be safe. It was fly the jet and mm-hmm. everything else um, one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the way we were flying, we came from the Mediterranean over Turkey into northern Iraq. So uh, ended up being very, very long missions. So despite all of that anticipation and that adrenaline surge and being ready to go, and it was a two-hour flight of just... <laughs> so uh, it was a little bit of time to, to calm down and, mm-hmm. and um, just be ready in a professional sense. Yeah.